Hello friends, welcome to another session on Survey of Theology. My name is Stephen Cook. Today we're going to pick up in our next lesson and we are going to cover uh, the assurance of salvation and the eternal security of the believer. For those of you that are listening to this uh, as uh, undergraduate students at Tyndale Theological Seminary and Biblical Institute, you will recognize uh, that the course syllabus is off. Today we are not going to cover the doctrine of election. I will cover that in the next lesson. Today we're going to talk about the assurance of salvation and the eternal security of the believer. The doctrine of election is a hotly debated subject, and so I will reserve that for the next session and give my best understanding of it. So today we'll talk about assurance of salvation and eternal security of the believer. And in some ways, this looks at our salvation from two perspectives. In one sense, the human side with regard to our assurance, and then also the divine side with the fact that God keeps us eternally secure. And so we're going to look at this from these two perspectives. Now, many years ago, when I was uh, younger in my Christian faith, uh, it's now 2023, so I'm thinking back to 1990, 91, and 92, those years, I did not believe in eternal security. I rejected it as a doctrine, as a biblical teaching. And um, I used to say that I could lose my salvation. And I shifted my language even then because uh, I didn't like the word lose. It seems haphazard. You know, I lose my car keys, I misplace them, I put them down, I can't find them. Uh, when I think of loss of salvation, I shifted and began to use the word forfeit. I could forfeit my salvation because I really understood even then that it was a volitional issue that it had to do something with choices I make to commit sin, to commit a sin or sins that would take me from a saved state to an unsaved state. The problem is, is I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Now, I came to understand that, and my wife will tell you, it took, took me about six months. And I really got convicted over the matter, because what happened was, was I was uh, reading uh, books by uh, Christian authors and listening to Bible lessons, and uh, these by teachers who held to eternal security. And I was benefiting them from them in some ways, but then I would say, oh, well, that doctrine's false, I'm going to reject that. But Proverbs 18.13 says, He who answers before he hears, to him it is folly and shame. To him who gives an answer before he hears, to him it is folly and shame. And so I had given an answer about eternal security before I'd really taken the time to listen uh, to what these other people had to say and to really, really consider what the Bible had to say on the matter. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take this, I'm going to suspend judgment, I'm going to put it up on my theological shelf until I can look into the matter. And, uh, and I did, about six months. My wife will tell you, I wrestled. I wrestled. And, uh, but I really wanted to sit down and read a, a number of books, and I had a lot of questions. In fact, uh, one time my wife and I drove about 50 miles uh, to, uh, to a university uh, that had a theology department. And I talked with the chair of the theology department at that time. My wife and I sat in his office, and uh, I had questions. And uh, he was very gentle, he was very kind, uh, and he gave me answers. And I had my uh, pocket full of passages, my Galatians 5, my Hebrews 6, and uh, Matthew 24, and others. And, uh, and I pulled him out, and he, he gave answers, and I thought, okay, well, that, that's, that seems reasonable. Uh, and so I really began to think through it. And over time, I shifted, and I came to accept that uh, once a believer is saved, that the, that the believer is always saved. Now, part of the problem that I have 
was that one, I really didn't understand what the scripture had to say on the matter, but also from my own imagination, I used to conjure up ideas about where the line was. And it was really quite ambiguous because here's what's interesting is if you talk to people who believe that they can forfeit their salvation, if you ask them what's the sin and or sins that they can commit that will take them from a saved state to an unsaved state, everybody will give you a different answer. Everybody will give you a different answer. Some will say, well, if you commit any sin, uh, no matter how small the infraction, you're out. Others will say, no, 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 you're, you're, really, you're, you're, you're secure and you really have to commit very, very egregious sins and that for a prolonged period of time and, uh, and then you're out. Well, to me it seemed a little confusing that the Word of God, uh, if it taught this, did not provide a clear line that would say, if you commit this sin and or sins, you're out. And to me, it only seemed to make sense that if, that if that were a possibility, that God would warn you. He would let you know. He wouldn't leave you guessing. He would say, okay, well, if you commit this sin, you're out. Or these sins, you're out. Uh, that the Word of God would make that clear. And, and the fact that there's so much ambiguity and the fact that so many people had different answers uh, was born out of the fact that, uh, that the Bible simply does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that. And so... I wrestled with those sorts of things. Now, some people might say, oh, well, you have eternal security. Uh, well, then you can just sin as you please, run off and do whatever you want. Uh, goodbye, God. I'll see you in eternity. You've got your fire insurance. You'll never go to the lake of fire. So let's just go out and party it up and sin like the devil. Well, that right there tells me you don't understand God. You don't understand his word. Uh, because uh, two things. One, uh, Hebrews 12 makes it very clear that he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And, and, and divine discipline can be really, really severe at times. In fact, it can even be to the point of physical death. That's right. God can remove the believer from this world by physical death as an act of divine discipline. Leviticus chapter 10 speaks about the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who brought unauthorized fire into the tabernacle. And God struck him dead. When Uzzah reached out and touched the ark, God struck him dead. When Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 allied to the Holy Spirit, God struck them dead. You have Corinthians, you have Christians in the city of Corinth who were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And Hebrews, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, a euphemism for death. 1 John 5.16 talks about the sin unto death. So a believer who enters into sin and a sinful lifestyle, there's consequences. Because that believer has failed to enter into phase two of the Christian life as a disciple of the Lord, as one who is to walk with the Lord, who is to learn his word, live his word, and walk by faith, and a failure to do so. Now listen, God is very gracious. He's very slow to anger. He's very merciful. He's so quick to forgive. It's absolutely amazing. But if we, uh, if we go down that road, eventually God does lower the boom. And eventually there are consequences, and there is divine discipline. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that the sinning believer uh, who continues in status quo carnality, who is not operating by the filling of the Holy Spirit and not walking in the Spirit, not learning and living God's Word and walking by faith, uh, that believer is uh, uh, living a life that is wood, hay, and straw. And that means that the production of their life uh, will have no value when they enter into heaven and into the eternal state. And so that believer will forfeit uh, rewards in heaven and in the eternal state. It's not loss of salvation. They're in. They'll get in. Uh, it's just that they will uh, lose or forfeit 
reward. So there are consequences for the believer who enters into a sinful lifestyle. Never, never, never think that the believer just simply gets away with it. But one thing that that is not on the table is their salvation. That is not up for discussion. That is not up for debate. Once you are saved, you are saved. And you cannot unsave yourself. Uh, that it cannot happen. And I will make that case. Now, some of you who are listening to this may disagree with me, but at least hear me out. At least hear me out. So let's talk about the uh, importance of assurance. So our assurance of salvation is seen in three ways. Uh, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer states, and here I'm quoting from Major Bible Themes, he says, quote, Assurance of salvation depends upon three major aspects of experience. One, understanding of the completeness of the salvation provided in Jesus Christ. Two, the confirming testimony of Christian experience. And three, acceptance by faith of biblical promises of salvation, end quote. Now, though Christians may have some assurance of salvation because of their walk with God, this will never yield absolute confidence as they will on occasion commit sin. <clears throat> so this is the reality of it. Ecclesiastes 7.20, and I've talked about this before when we covered homardiology, which is the study of sin in the Bible, and we talked about how we are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. And even once we become saved, even once we become children of God and brothers and sisters to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we still retain our sin nature. Uh, the old man, it's called. Uh, the Pelias Anthropos. It's called Sarks. It's called the flesh that still resides within us. And so we still continue on with our sin nature that is not eradicated at the moment of salvation. Paul says in Romans 7, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so that is a continuing feature of the Christian life. Now the sin nature has been crippled. We do not have to yield to it. We can, in fact, learn God's word, live God's word, walk uh, by the Spirit in the filling of the Spirit. And we can advance to spiritual maturity. And as we pursue that life, uh, we will sin less. We will sin less, but we will never attain sinlessness. Uh, that is not something that is communicated in the Scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man, a righteous man on earth, who continually does good and who never sins. So that's the reality of it. That's the reality of it for me. It's the reality of it for you and for anybody who is saved. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? The answer, no one. First John 1 John 1.8, John says, if we, stop. The we here has to do with believers. It includes John, who is an apostle, who is here writing scripture. He says, if we, so it includes John and his Christian audience, if we say that we have no sin. Now the word sin here translates the Greek noun, hamartia, Hamartia, from which we get the root word for hamartiology. And a noun has to do with a person, place, or thing. So John says, if we say that we, as believers, have no sin, that is, no sin thing, no sin nature, then we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, in verse 10, he says, if we, again, talking about himself and his audience, if we say that we have not sinned, now, the word sinned here translates the Greek verb hamartano, hamartano, now that's the production, that's the production of our will, our, of our volition, 
If we say that we have not sinned, that we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, as I've said before, let me say it again, it is never, 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 never the will of God that we sin. Never, okay? Uh, but the reality is, is that when we sin, and we do sin, it is his will that we handle it in a biblical way. Because God has provided systems whereby believers can be restored to fellowship, because sin breaks fellowship, okay? In fact, if you go back and you study the book of Leviticus, there was a whole book under the Mosaic Law whereby there was a sacrificial system whereby the believer who sinned could come and be restored to God by means of offering a sacrifice. Today, we don't offer sacrifices. We look to the sacrifice of Christ. That's a one-and-done deal. And so when we come, for us, it's very simple. It's 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins... That is, if we just simply name them to God. See how wonderful that is? There's no animals involved. There's no blood. There's, no, there's nothing of that nature. It's the blood of Christ. It's his sacrifice upon the cross. If we come and confess our sins, and the word if is a third-class conditional clause in the Greek, which means maybe we will and maybe we won't. It's up to you. It's up to me. If we come and confess our sins, okay, if we name them to God, be specific, okay, don't, uh, don't, uh, guess here, just, you know, be specific, say, I lied, I lusted, I cursed, whatever the sin happened to be, mental attitude, sins, verbal sins, sins of the flesh, whatever it is, you know. If we confess it, if we name it to God, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's the wonderful uh, solution to it. Now, John writes, he says, my little children, believers, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now think of that. He says, I'm writing these things to you. And so we're talking about revelation here. Because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. And if you want to walk in righteousness, if you want to live the life of a believer who is walking in righteousness, and I do, I assume you do too, that's why you're here listening to this. He says, I am writing these things to you, so you need revelation. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Because it's never the will of God that we sin. But when we sin, it is always his will that we handle it in a biblical manner. And John assures us, he says, and if anyone sins, and here he's talking to believers about believers, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So let me get back into the notes here. So, um, though Christians may have some assurance of salvation because of their walk with God, this will never yield absolute confidence as they will on occasion commit sin, which will bring their assurance into question. But Christians can have full assurance of salvation when they look to Christ alone. Now, when I believed that I could forfeit my salvation, the problem was, was that's really a backdoor approach to works salvation. Because even though I didn't believe that I brought works to my salvation, I believed that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I believed that I had to do some works to keep myself saved. Okay? And so, we must understand that salvation is all of God and all of Christ and not of us. Not, not with regard to our eternal security. Okay? That's, I'm talking about eternal security here. So... It's not works that we do before salvation, during salvation, or after salvation. None of that touches our salvation, not before, during, or after. Now, good works should follow salvation, but they're never the condition of it. And that was my problem, was I was making works a condition of salvation afterwards. 
And so uh, because I believed that I could forfeit my salvation, I really believed that I had to do something to keep myself saved. I believed that I had to do something to keep myself saved. But at that moment, I never have assurance because I'm looking to me. Think about it. If you are looking to yourself and trying to feel assurance, it'll never happen. Because you, because the pendulum swings back and forth. You're walking in the will of God. You're not walking in the will of God. But when I look to Christ, when I look to Christ as my Savior, when I look to Christ as the source of my salvation, then I have assurance because I'm looking to him and not to me. And his life wasn't a pendulum swinging back and forth. He wasn't in the will of God and out of the will of God. He committed no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. He's perfect. He, he, he walked in perfect righteousness. His life is a perfect life. And he went to the cross and he died for my sin. In my place, a substitute, he hung between heaven and earth, the just for the unjust. And when I look to Christ and what he did, his is a perfectly righteous life. His is a perfect life. And when I look to him, I have assurance. I have assurance. And so again, the point is, is if you're looking to yourself, no assurance. If you're looking to Christ, you have assurance, okay? And so John writes in 1 John 5, 13, he says, These things I have written to you. Again, notice that this has to do with revelation. This is not predicated on one's uh, personal thoughts or experiences. This is based upon what is written in the Word of God, okay? He says, These things I have written to you, to you who? To you who believe in the name of the Son of God. There's your focus, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not speculate, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is assurance. This is assurance. Now, now, when I sin, I know three things are true. I know, one, I'm out of fellowship with God. Okay, I know that I have broken fellowship with God. Okay, so I am no, no longer walking in the Spirit. I'm no longer filled with the Spirit. I'm in status quo carnality. But I also know that if I perpetuate that, if I continue in that, that I am subject to divine discipline, that, that I'm in real danger at that point, not of loss of salvation, but of divine discipline. And the third thing I know is that if I confess my sins, God will bring me back into fellowship with Him, that God will bring me back into fellowship with Him. But I never question my eternal security, because I know the one in whom I have trusted, and I look to Christ, and I know that he and he alone saves. So again, John says, I know these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So let's talk about understanding the nature of salvation. First of all, God is holy and completely set apart from sin. Completely set apart from sin, 100%. Habakkuk 1.13 says your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. First uh, John 1.5 says God, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is holy, he is positively righteous, he cannot look on wickedness with favor, And here's the problem. All of us are under sin. All of us are under the guilt of sin, and we are helpless to save ourselves because there is none righteous, no, not even one. And according to Romans 5, 6 through 10, we are helpless, we are ungodly, we are sinners, 
and we are enemies of God before we came to faith in Christ. Now, at the moment of faith in Christ, uh, that is undone, and we are now children of God. But the reality is, is that as, as unbelievers, we are all under the guilt of sin and helpless, helpless to save ourselves. Furthermore, good works have no saving merit in God's sight. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. Faith does not save, Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Not at all. Uh, 100% not of ourselves. It, that is our salvation, is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Now, if something is a gift, it means that somebody else paid for it in full. And if I have to pay for it in any way, if I have to give two cents for it, it's not a gift. It means I bought it. But the reality is, is that it is a gift, paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Notice, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because if it's of works, you get to boast. I get to boast. But it's not of works. Now, good works should follow salvation. That's what Ephesians 2.10 is about. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That, that's what God wants from us. He wants a life of righteousness. But it is, we must understand that no amount of works before, during, or after salvation get us saved or keep us saved. It is the work of Christ and Christ alone. And it is a gift. It is a gift. Titus 3.5. He saved us. That's always the order. It's top down. It's from God to us. We do not save ourselves. He saved us. Notice, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. Okay? So it's not based on any deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Salvation is never what we do for God, but rather what He has done for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who died in our place and bore the punishment that rightfully belongs to us. He paid the penalty for our sins. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. But it was a once for all. It was a one and done deal. Okay, And our salvation is conditioned on faith alone in Christ alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And have eternal life. And by the way, eternal life is not what we can have. Uh, it's what we have at the moment of faith in Christ. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give eternal life, ditto me, in the Greek. It's a present tense, present active indicative. Present tense means it's a right now truth. Eternal life is not what we can have at the moment of faith in Christ. It's what we have. 
Now, it finds its fullest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless something we possess. If we could forfeit it, it would not be eternal life. It would be temporal life. If we could forfeit it, it would not be eternal life. It would be temporal life. But it is eternal life. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of, of God, of the glory of God. Catch this, being justified as a gift. Don't miss that. Being justified how? As a gift. A gift. Paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. Justified as a gift by His grace. Caught us. Undeserved favor. Unmerited kindness. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. That's true. Uh, we are justified as a gift by His grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And God, whom God displayed publicly... As a propitiation, hilasterion, as a satisfaction for our sins, in his blood, through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? Um, Notice verse 27, where then is boasting? What are you going to boast about? Where's boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. It's excluded by the law of faith. By the law of faith, because faith doesn't save. Christ saves. What does he say in verse 28? For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So again, very, very clear. Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, how are we justified? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So our salvation is conditioned on faith alone in Christ alone. And once we trust in Christ as Savior, God's righteous demands toward our sin are forever satisfied. It is called a propitiation. It is called a propitiation in His blood. Again, propitiation uh, means satisfaction. God is satisfied with all of our sin. It's been paid for in full. Paid for by whom? By the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the coin of the heavenly realm that purchased our sin? His blood. His shed blood upon the cross. The blood of Christ is the only coin, the only coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. Nothing else will do. 1 John 2, 2, He Himself is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. At the moment of faith in Christ, we are forgiven all of our sins, Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption. Uh, how? Through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. And this according to the riches of His grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. Not only that, but we are imputed with His righteousness. Romans 5.17 calls it the gift of righteousness. 
Philippians 3.9, Paul says that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. We need righteousness. We need righteousness to get into heaven. Well, you can trust in your righteousness and your own good works, but all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. Not acceptable. It's not going to get you in. You need righteousness to get into heaven. You're going to try to produce your own? It's not going to get you what you want. It's not going to get you what you want. There are many self-righteous people that are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire because they trusted in their own righteousness. We need righteousness. And Paul says in Philippians 3.9 that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. He calls that scubalon. Um, he calls that uh, rubbish, <laughs> fecal matter, human excrement. You, know, you put the word in there. Uh, but he says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's a gift. It's the gift of righteousness. You can't add to it. You can't improve it. It's perfect. It's God's righteousness. What are you going to do? You're going to add to God's righteousness? You can, somehow you're going to improve on that? You think you can do that? <laughs> uh, no. Not going to happen. And so we have imputed righteousness. We have the gift of righteousness. And we will never, never, never face condemnation. Never face condemnation. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christo. A prepositional phrase that Paul uses many times. In Christ. 1 John 2, 1. I am writing, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's true. Don't sin. Walk with God. It's the best life. Trust me. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so he is our advocate. He is our parakletos. He is our defense attorney in heaven. And so when we sin, the devil comes along and says, there he did it again. There he did it again. There he did it again. And Jesus says to the Father, I paid for that sin. And I paid for that sin. And I paid for that sin. And my blood was the payment for that sin. And so he's constantly defending us in heaven. We have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. And uh, and he is defending us. And uh, and that is that is true for all believers and for all eternity. So the believer uh, is born again, has new life. Again, we have eternal life. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. So that's the reality of the situation. So let's move on. We also have the confirming testimony of Christian experience. The new life that is, in, that is in the Christian is manifest only in the one who is surrendered to God. Now, we have the new life. We do have it. But we must, as believers, submit ourselves to God. And, and at a point in time, I think there's a point in time where we say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with you, Father. Excuse me. And so we, we enter into this surrendered life, Romans six eleven through 13. Paul, talking to Christians, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, that is, to the sin nature, to its power, that, you don't, that, you're, that you're cut off from it, that, that, um, that it no longer has dominion over you. Okay, So you're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is done by faith. Therefore, do not let sin, and sin does continue. Remember, we have a sin nature. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Well, why even give that command if it were not a possibility? Think about it. Why even give that command, that directive, if it's not a possibility? It is a possibility. 
But the believer must choose to walk with God. We must choose to not let sin reign in our body. And so we enter into the discipline of the Christian life, the discipline of the mind and the will, in which we seek to learn God's word, live God's word, and to live that out. But he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Can a believer do that? Can a believer do what Paul is saying here not to do? The answer is emphatically yes. In fact, the whole command would be meaningless if this were not a possibility. Think about it. He says, and do not, who's he talking to? Christians. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You can do that. We have, we have choices to make as Christians. We have choices to make. But what is the choice that God wants from us? Here it is. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Uh, and this starts with an identification truth in which we understand that we are in Christ, that we have a new nature, that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And God has equipped us with the resources we need to live out the Christian life. He has given us the information we need in His Word to learn His will, to walk in His will. And so we have that. And so the new life that is in the Christian is manifest only in the one who is surrendered to God. This is why Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, believers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Well, again, why give this directive uh, if it's if it's if it's possible to do otherwise, it is possible to do otherwise. It is possible not to uh, present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And this is why he's appealing to them. He says, "I'm urging you." I mean, there's a there's an urgency here in Paul's tone in his words, and he just he just flat out says it. He says, "I urge you, brethren, believers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies." And I encourage believers, when I run into believers, I'm like, learn the word, live the word, grow, walk, uh, grow up. (laughs) Um, But we must surrender ourselves to God. We must learn to live by faith. Uh, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live in me, but Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. He's talking about his life as an atoning sacrifice. He died for me. He gave his all. And what a wonderful Savior. And why would I not want to serve one who loves me so much? Why would I not want to do that? It makes Again, it makes no sense. As Christians, we are to be filled with the Spirit. Well, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? You received Him by faith. How are you to walk in Him? You are to walk by faith. You are to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians five eighteen. You are to walk by means of the Spirit. Galatians five sixteen. And the Christian who has surrendered to sin um, will manifest those qualities of the sin nature. So the Christian who has surrendered to sin and to the sin nature will manifest those qualities of the sin nature. 
Notice Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Brethren, he's talking to believers, but he's talking to immature baby believers. And not only that, but baby believers who aren't growing. They're governed by their sin nature. He says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, that is to believers who are filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and growing in the Spirit, but as to men of the flesh, sarks, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now uh, you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly, sarkikos. You are manifesting the characteristics of one governed by the sin nature. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, is it possible for Christians to manifest jealousy and strife? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And not only that, but we will suffer divine discipline if we give ourselves over. Again, Hebrews 12, He whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. A scourge was a, was a whipping. <laughs> That's pretty serious. It says, and He scourges every son, pasaw weos, every son whom He receives. And that means that if we live long enough, uh, we're, we're, we're all going to get at least one good skinning in our lifetime. That that will, in fact, happen. And we can even experience the sin unto death. 1 John 5, 16. John says, if anyone sees his brother, notice this is a brother in Christ, this is a believer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, uh-oh, can believers commit sin? Yeah. So if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, you see, there is a sin that does not lead to death. In other words, this has to do with a, uh, a I hate to call it a minor infraction, but um, it's, it's, not a, it's not an egregious sin. Uh, and we even think about this in our own laws. I mean, you know, uh, speeding laws, you know, that's not deserving of capital punishment. Murder, rape, kidnapping, eh. Now, those are guilty of capital punishment under our judicial system. But he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. But he says, there is a sin leading to death. So even John draws a distinction between the sin that does not lead to death and the sin that leads to death among believers. So whether the Christian is spiritual or carnal, he is always said to be in Christ. He is in Christ. He is in Christo. And that is our identification truth. We are in Christ. And we belong to the family of God. Now the following modified points are taken from major Bible themes, uh, pages 214 to 216. Uh, he talks about here, he says, the knowledge that God is our Heavenly Father. This also brings us assurance that God is, uh, that God is our Heavenly Father. And so, like in John... Um, eleven twenty-seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Even when Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew six, He said, "Our Father." So we can have assurance of our salvation by the knowledge that God is our heavenly Father. Also, that prayer is the new reality for the Christian. That we can enter into a life of prayer. We also have the ability to comprehend Scripture. We have the ability to comprehend Scripture. Uh, in fact. Um, uh, John uh, chapter 16, 
Uh, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And the spirit illumines our minds. He opens our minds to understand the scriptures. Luke twenty four thirty two. Uh, this speaking of those disciples who were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and it, and after they had realized who Jesus was, uh, they said to one another, "Were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us?" Uh, and then in verse forty-five, it says, "Then He opened their minds to understand the Scripture." So, as believers, we have an increased capacity to know the Word of God. The believer also has a heightened awareness of sin, a heightened awareness of sin. In fact, when you come into salvation, uh, your awareness of sin increases. I mean, you thought you knew were aware of sin before salvation. It actually increases after you're saved. It follows that Christ, who died for sin, will naturally incline the heart of the Christian to hate that which he hates and to reform the character of the one in whom he dwells. You will also have a new love for both unsaved and saved persons. Uh, Dr. Chafer uh, goes on, he says, it follows that Christ, who died for the lost, will naturally incline the heart of the Christian to love that which he loves. Number six, there will be a transformed character in the life of the surrendered Christian. A transformed life, a transformed character in the life of the surrendered Christian. Number seven, uh, these combined experiences make the Christian aware of his or her salvation through faith in Christ. Though there continues an awareness of sin, the believer knows that he or she is not condemned because of their union with Christ. Now, we can also have assurance by accepting the veracity, that is the truthfulness, of the promises of the Bible. And so again, these these following modified points are taken from major Bible themes, pages 216 to 218. One, the assurance of one's salvation rests upon the truthfulness of Scripture that God's promises are true. First uh, John 5.13 again, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So again, has eternal life. Two, very few remember the moment or day they trusted Christ as Savior. But what is important is that each Christian knows that he is trusting Christ now. Point number three, doubting the faithfulness of God casts a shadow of doubt over our salvation. Chafer states, and here I'm quoting um, again from major Bible themes. This is from page 217 and 218. He says, quote, This state of mind is usually caused by looking for a change in their feelings rather than looking to the faithfulness of Christ. Feelings and experiences have their place. But, as stated before, the final evidence of personal salvation, which is unchanged by these, is the truthfulness of God. What he has said, he will do, and it is not pious or commendable for a person to distrust his salvation 
after, after having definitely cast himself upon Christ, end quote. And number four, assurance of salvation depends on understanding the nature of God's complete salvation in Christ. So let's go on and talk about the security of the believer. Now, almost all Christians question at some time whether they are able to become unsaved after they've trusted Christ as Savior. At the heart of the issue is whether we understand, is whether we understand salvation to be a work of man for God, either in whole or in part, or whether it is a work of God alone on behalf of mankind. Let me say that again. At the heart of the issue, at the heart of the issue, uh, is whether we understand that salvation uh, is a work of man for God, either in whole or in part, or whether it is a work of God alone on behalf of mankind. It follows that if man contributes towards his salvation in any way, then it may be undone if he acts contrary to the character and to the will of God. So this is just logically follows out. It follows that if man contributes towards his salvation in any way, then it may be undone if he acts contrary to the character and to the will of God. If, however, salvation is the work of God alone, apart from any human effort, then God can keep one saved completely, apart from human activity, good or bad. And so you see how this has to be thought out. Now, the Arminian view of security, uh, and this, these following points are modified. They're taken from major Bible themes, pages 221 to 223. First, probably the most important question facing the interpreter of the Bible on the subject of the question is, who is a true believer? Two, many of the passages quoted by those who oppose eternal security deal with human works uh, or the evidence of salvation. So they're they're looking at mankind, or they're looking at the fruit of those persons as evidence of salvation. And number three, many passages quoted in support of the insecurity of believers are in the form of warnings against superficial belief in Christ. And so there are warning passages um, that are directed toward Christians, uh, but these have to do with divine discipline. Um, and not loss of salvation. Uh, point number four, some biblical passages deal with the matter of reward rather than salvation. And I'd mentioned this one before, but let me back up on 1 Corinthians 3. Now, Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. He says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each one, each one must, each man must be careful how he builds on it. He says, "For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus." Now the foundation is our salvation, okay? And he says, "For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus." But now we talk about phase two of the Christian life. We talk about the production of our life building on that foundation. Because as Christians, we are to work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. Verse 12 says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that is the life of the believer who is walking in the Spirit, 
who is learning and living God's word, uh, and who is producing a life of good works as God expects from us. Uh, and then he says, but wood, and then he describes wood, hay, or straw. This is the believer who is not walking in the will of God, who is producing, who has a life of production that's just merely the, the, the fruit of the flesh. Paul says, each man's work will become evident for the day, and this is the day when we stand before the Bema seat of Christ in heaven, uh, to be judged, not judged as to whether we get into heaven, that's already secure, but to be judged with regard to what rewards we will, we will receive in heaven and in the eternal state. He says, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive what? A reward. So we're talking about rewards here. If any man's work is burned up, wood, hay, straw, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? Not loss of salvation. He will suffer loss of reward. Notice the latter part of verse 15. But he himself will be what? Saved. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Going on in the notes here, point number five. A genuine Christian may also lose his fellowship with God because of sin and will also not manifest the fruit of the Spirit. That is, that is true. A true believer, because of his waywardness, may be chastened may be chastened or disciplined just as a child is disciplined by his father. And so we can suffer uh, divine discipline, even to the point of death. Point number seven, it is possible for a believer to be fallen from the grace of God as a way of life. Galatians 5, 1-4 talks about uh, us walking away from grace as a way of life and trying to bring ourselves back under the Mosaic Law. Point number eight, some passages are simply misinterpreted. And this was one that I used to hold to, Matthew 24, 13. It says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And I used to say, see, you have to endure. You have to endure to the end. You have to endure and do good works to the end in order to be saved. Well, remember last time when I was talking about uh, under soteriology, the study of salvation. And we looked at uh, words uh, sozo and soteria. Um, and here we have the use of the verb sozo, which means to be saved, that the vast majority of the passages, and I think it's upwards of 75% actually throughout Old and New Testament, when it talks about salvation, it's physical deliverance, not spiritual. And too often we want to make salvation spiritual on all biblical passages, and this is where it creates a little bit of confusion. And context, remember, always determines the meaning of a word. So when we look at the context of Matthew 24, what's going on in the context? In the context, he's talking about the time of the tribulation. He's talking about the seven-year tribulation. And he's talking about that time period uh, after the time of the rapture of the church, when there will be a seven-year time period uh, known as the Tribulation and Great Tribulation. And so Jesus is talking about that time period. And he says, but, but, he says, but the one who endures to the end, to the end of what? To the end of what? 
You see, I used to lift that verse out and say, oh, you have to endure to the end of your life. You see, that's how I understood that, um, you know, 30 plus years ago, that you have to endure to the end of your life. But when you put it back into its context, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about spiritual salvation. He's talking about physical deliverance. And he's talking about the period of the, tri- of the tribulation. He says, but the one who endures to the end of the tribulation. In other words, if you survive the seven years of the tribulation, uh, he will be saved physically. That is, you will, you will then, that person will then walk into the millennial kingdom. Okay. Uh, so when he's talking in this verse here, man, did I misunderstand that verse. And when I put it back into its context and I understood what Jesus was talking about before and after, I realized it's not talking about my spiritual salvation. He's not talking about enduring to the end of my life. He's talking about the tribulation and the one who endures to the end of the tribulation will be saved physically. In other words, he won't die a martyr's death. He won't die a martyr's death, which many believers will. But if he or she endures to the end of the tribulation, their life will be saved physically, and they will then be among those uh, those believers. And there will be some. There will be some believers who survive the tribulation, who are saved during the tribulation, who survive the tribulation, will not be martyred, and they will walk into the millennial kingdom. They will see the return of Christ, and they will be uh, saved uh, physically to the end, and will walk into the millennial kingdom. So some passages are just simply misinterpreted, okay? Point number nine, the ultimate answer of security or or insecurity of the believer rests on the question of who does the work of salvation. Who does the work? Is it God alone or is it God plus me? So you see how I'm trying to bring this down to an irreducible minimum. I'm trying to get down to the core of what's really at the heart of the issue. So the work of the Father in salvation... Uh, so the following modified points are taken from major Bible themes, uh, pages 224 and 225. Number one, the scripture reveals the sovereign promise of God, which is unconditional and which promises eternal sub- salvation to everyone who believes in Christ. John 3:16, John 5:24, and following. Number two, the infinite power of God is able to save and keep eternally. John 10:25. I mean, if you back up to John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them. I give, present tense, uh, active voice, Jesus gives it to us. Uh, I give eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, don't catch it, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Point number three, the infinite love of God uh, also keeps us. uh, Not only, he says here, the infinite love of God not only accounts for God's eternal purpose, but assures assures that his purpose will be fulfilled. Will be fulfilled. Point number four, the righteousness of God also assures the eternal security of those who have trusted in Christ. Because the demands of God's righteousness have been completely met, by the death of Christ, in that he dies for the sins of the whole world. Again, what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus alone accomplished on the cross propitiates the Father, satisfies the Father's righteous demands for our sin. Also, the work of the Son. 
So the following modified points are taken from major Bible themes, pages 225 and 226. First, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the absolute guarantee of the believer's security. Paul says, who is the one who condemns? Uh, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, uh, who also intercedes for us. And the answer is no one condemns, because we are justified not in ourselves, but we are justified in Christ in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus, also, the resurrection of Christ uh, as God's seal upon the death of Christ secures the resurrection and the life for the believers. Um, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, again, remember, it's always a gift and it's always free. The free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Point number three, the work of Christ as our advocate in heaven also assures our eternal security. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Point number four, the work of Christ as our intercessor supplements and confirms his work as our advocate. So he continues to intercede for us before the Father. Let's talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now the following modified points are taken from major Bible themes, pages 226 to 228. The work of regeneration, first, the work of regeneration or new birth in which the believer partakes of the divine nature is an irreversible, is an irreversible process and the work of God. It is the work of God. John 1.13 says that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but we were born, what? Of God. So we are born, our salvation uh, is not of blood, not ours, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the kindness of uh, God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And the new birth cannot be reversed. Point number two, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the present age is a permanent possession of the believer. That we are, that the Spirit of God dwells in us, that the Spirit of God dwells in us and is actually uh, Himself the seal. Point number three, the work of the Holy Spirit in baptism by which the believer is joined to Christ and to the body of Christ is eternally, uh, and, and is, excuse me, and is joined to Christ and to the body of Christ eternally is another evidence for security. Point number four, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer is said to be the seal of God, which will endure until the day of redemption, the day of the translation or resurrection of the believer. Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, here it is, you were sealed in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
So the Holy Spirit seals the deal. The Holy Spirit seals the deal. And the word sealed here translates that Greek ver- verb sphragizo. Um, and here it is a permanent seal. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is himself the seal. So once the Spirit is given to you, it locks it in. You are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, okay, who is given as a pledge uh, of our inheritance with a view to the redemption uh, of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So going on in the notes here, Scripture reveals that salvation is a work of God alone. It is a work of God alone on behalf of mankind. God has done everything necessary to save eternally those who trust in Christ as Savior. God will discipline the Christian who turns to a life of sin. And though that Christian may suffer divine discipline, even to the point of physical death, uh, that believer will never be in danger of forfeiting his or her eternal relationship with God. So hopefully this gives uh, you something to think about with regard to what does the Scripture say. And again, I have not delved deeply into this. Again, this is a survey of theology. So I'm introducing you to these concepts, making a case, uh, presenting key scriptures. Uh, There are other good works on this subject. So if you want to mine this more for yourself, please do so. There are many good works. And read both sides. Read both sides. Take the time. Uh, Read the sides of those who would argue that you can forfeit your salvation. Listen to what they have to say. Hear their argument. Always chase down the scripture, though. Look at the scripture and look at it in its context. And then read those who argue for eternal security. And see what the scriptures have to say. And listen to the argument, to the line of reasoning. And always at the end of the day, you make the decision based on what the word of God reveals. You make the decision. And I have come to this place of eternal security, and I do believe that that is the correct biblical teaching. But you have to come to that yourself. You have to wrestle with it. And, uh, and so I hope that this lesson has been helpful to you uh, and that it has provided some information uh, that will benefit you. And I thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this lesson. Next time, we will jump into uh, the subject of divine election. So that should be a very interesting study. Uh, I thank you very much, and I wish you a good day.